Hello, welcome to the 40th, wow, that's like anniversary, 40th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast ever, this is the 40th ever of 39 before and 40 now, and it never happened again. There's a man with a ratchet outside, hopefully you can't hear him, but in, I get it. in, this, oh. in this podcast I have, who do I have with me? Uh, you have Quentin Smith. Uh, Hi Quentin. Joining you on this podcast, which you forgot to say is about board games, card games and all the other games you can play in your very own house. That's true. You can play with uh, Matthew Lees in your very own house as well. Hello, my name is Matt Lees. I'm a level six bard. We got to episode 40 wow. of mm. the podcast. Once you're over the hill... Well done, everyone. You pick up speed. That's what people say. Life begins at middle age. Mm-hmm. My mum always said that speed was very unhealthy and that only she should do it and it wasn't for kids. Yeah. yeah. Really? Mums, eh? Mums. <laughs> How about mums? How about board games? Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, though, you've been cheating on us with another podcast. That's not true. Don't say that. It is, it is, it is demonstrably true. <laughs> it is 100% true. Matt, what happened? Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I just I got invited to be on uh, a podcast which we liked. And it's rare that we like podcasts. So, Well, it's rare that I like podcasts. <laughs> yes. You guys love them. I can't stand the things. Even though I, wow. I record literally hundreds of them. Um, yeah, I went on the Tuesday night uh, podcast, which is the podcast um, of Alan Girding and some of the other chaps who make Tuesday night games. So yeah, which do... is two rooms and a boom, and soon to be um, world championship Russian roulette. Is that right? Yeah, so I it's, think so. Yeah, it's kind of an odd one because I guess it's, it's technically a publisher's podcast, but they're just a couple of people, and um, I think. Uh, I've, I've been listening to the podcast a bit and they talk about interesting things they talk about industry they stuff do. and I think they have lots of interesting conversations about just things I love it because they you know take your time seriously and also they're very candid about yeah, uh, yeah they are full disclosure they had some nice things to say about us which means there is a hard and fast limit as to how nice we can be about their podcast before we enter the bog of uh, Contra- uh, that's it circle jackal <laughs> Circle Matthew. jerking is not the term. Uh, sorry, no, it's also bad. My mum also said that circle <laughs> jerking wasn't for kids and that only she <laughs> Oh my god, stop it. Oh my god, stop, please. Stop the mum chat. So, right? if people want to hear you on the Tuesday Night Games podcast, how can they do that? I guess they just like Google that. Like, get Tuesday yeah, that Night sounds good. Games podcast. The same way with Matt that Lees. you do anything on the internet. But it's night with a K. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's good. Had a nice chat with Adam Girding. It was just me and him. We just chatted for ages, had some nice tangents. Uh, but yeah, some real conversations, talking about all sorts of stuff. I heard you got uh, grilled as to exactly how many board games you have not yeah, played. He yeah, he did. Yeah. And it's, it's so good because he just says no to everything. <laughs> Pretty much <laughs> Which is everything. great, actually. Yeah, we talked about that and it was interesting because I was like, I've never really hidden that, um, the fact that I've not played tons of the classics. And like I sort uh, of... Settlers of Catan? Nope. Carcassonne? Nope. Yeah. Ticket to Ride? Nope. Uh, but this is we're just repeating the just podcast. Just repeating the now. podcast. If you want to hear that, but for loads more games, then uh, <laughs> listen to it. It's fun. But no, it was interesting talking about that and explaining the fact that it's actually really valuable to have that kind of outsider input. Um, yeah. With whatever whatever you're doing, even though at the same time I'm aware it will probably make some people like explode with rage. You know, you say that I think board gamers and especially our audience are pretty cool cats who will not uh, get all het up about. Those You're probably right. Happenings. You're probably right. Um, I think it's just, yeah, you know, it's one of those things. My news this month. Uh, so I Ooh. work quite closely with Astevium, who are a publisher in the UK. They're, well, they're the yes. distributor as well. They're an arm of Asmodee. This is a bunch of words you don't need to know. The point is, I received a press release from someone who I work with on a weekly basis to receive uh, the board games that we review. 
Um, announcing a new edition of Splendor. You guys remember Splendor, the sort of gem collecting Ooh, game? It's coffee sweetener. It's pretty good, and it's a coffee sweetener here in the UK. Thanks. It's Matthew. very good, Matthew. Have you played Splendor? That's my Splendor joke. Uh, no, I haven't. Good. Oh, uh, you have. No, you have to get him to play Splendor. I no, you see, I want to play these games. It's just that you guys are always like, "Oh, that old game. I've played that game a thousand times. I can't be bothered." I, I don't think it ages. I don't think no, it ages. I, Splendor is one of those ones I get the impression is still just very good. It's decent, yeah. but uh, so it's Matthew. It's a game by collecting gems and then use the gems to get more gem mines and all this stuff. They announced in this press release uh, a limited edition run of an eighty-three thousand euro. Uh, edition of Splendor. They were going to be like doing 14 of these boxes and uh, they were going to feature actual small gems that Whoa. Uh, that you can use. Only so I'd, this is like a unique version of uh, this like masterpiece edition thing we've seen. Like there's a fancy version of Ticket to Ride in Small World recently. So I wrote back to my friend Ben Hogg and I said, "Ben, this is crazy this press release you sent me. An 83,000 euro version of Splendor." This is, you're a crazy man. I can't believe this. Is this embargoed? And he said, it's April Fool's. Ah, um, you got April oh, Fool's. I got April Fool's ah, in a way. The thing is, I can believe that because there's, I don't know if you know this. I discovered this um, through a, a relative who occasionally delivers things, who does special deliveries. What, a postman. You can, <laughs> basi- yeah, basically. But you can get, you know, you get covers for your phone. You get covers for your mobile phone that mm-hmm. are custom covers. And there'll be like an R2-D2 cover or a Beyonce cover or something. You can actually get just gold oh, yeah. phone covers oh, yeah. or uh, crystal, or like encrusted. Stuff, yeah. yeah. And the thing is, like, only very, very rich people order them or buy them. And they're sort of custom made. But they make them because people buy them. Oh, yeah. It's astounding. They exist. I mean, it's like, it's genuinely like the kind of the end of the world style um, awfulness. But people love that stuff. It's like, you know, my phone will be obsolete in about six months. Better cover it in gold right now. <laughs> yeah. I'd never thought about that. <laughs> Paul, do you have any uh, any news? What have you been up to? What's happening over there in Vancouver? Uh, well, I, I guess I've got two main bits of news from Vancouver. Uh, I did a wonderful interview, which we'll plop on the podcast in a little while, with Isaac Vega of Played Hat Games. Ah, uh, yeah, the one of plop the, it in, just gently, just it gently in. lower it in. Yeah. He's one of the co-designers of Dead of Winter, is that right? Yes, he uh, he is a very very thoughtful and interesting game designer. Um, and we talked about some of the forthcoming characters in the new Dead of Winter. Sort of, it's a kind of a standalone expansion, um, and some of the character design in that. I don't want to spoil what he had to say, but there's a lot of interesting choices about the, the characters they've chosen and why they've chosen those people, and uh, he has a lot to say about representation, mm. which I thought was very, very important. Um, but I'll, I'll let him speak for himself. But yeah, we've got that waiting for people at the at the tail end of this particular uh, podcast. Mm. We have. It's like the and fried rice at the end of the buffet. Yeah, wait, you don't have it at the end, would you? You, you do. Yeah. Do you? Egg right. fried rice why, why is, you... is traditionally served right at the end. The idea is that you have all your guests and you show the guests, you let them have as much as they want, and then at the end, when everyone's pretty much full, you bring out loads of egg fried rice. And it's a way of showing you let you, you've let your guests have their fill on expensive things like fish and meat, and then at the end you go, Oh, and here's the cheap stuff. When you say you let like as if this is something that everyone does. That's the traditional Chinese thing, yeah. That's the, that's the way really? egg fried rice would traditionally be brought out at the end of the buffet, just so you don't look cheap. Trying to fill up your guests on carbs. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, there you are. I, learned I didn't know that. I'm so not used to you saying things that aren't jokes or lies. That I'm like, <laughs> I am reeling right now. Yeah, it's rare, I know. Uh, Paul, what else you got? Uh, I've been playing And Then We Held Hands, oh. which is a two-player cooperative horror relationship game. <laughs> I don't think the designers would have described it as a horror game, would they? Well, it is. It is. Would you like to know about it? Yeah, tell us about uh, And Then We Held Hands. I've not you know, been searching this one out because it looks like kind of a... It's a, it was a Game Jam game, right? And then it got a sort of small, uh, quite nice-looking box edition. But it never seemed like a something that I desperately had to play. Well, you know what? I, I don't know if you do. I think you might be right. The thing is, it's uh, it's a very dinky game and it's very cute. Um, it comes with a dinky board, comes with a sort of uh, very dinky small box and li- a couple of little beads and a bunch of small cards. And the idea is you have this sort of abstract circular board. have two players... You- only ever have two players have to play two people cooperatively and you both need to end up putting your counters in the very middle of the board the very uh, middle space of the board um, consecutively you have to end the game basically on the same spot and you're approaching from different sides and you can rotate around the outside of the board or you can jump to inside tracks gradually as the uh, as the game progresses but you have a certain uh, set of cards in front of you which dictate which spaces you can land on And you're allowed to take, use your own cards or take cards from the other player. But you can only ever look at uh, half of the cards. The cards have something on two sides. They'll have something on the left side, something on the right side that can tell you which spot you go in. And depending where you are on the board, you only have access to half of what the card shows. So half of its possible movements. And the thing is, you're, you're trying to... You have objectives that are sort of uh, feelings or emotions that you're trying to reach like sad or happy and then you have these cards that that represent the spaces you can land on that are things like depressed or excited but you you can't talk to each other about any of the choices you make or any of the movements you make that's one of the main rules of the game is you have to sort of help each other move around it's fine to take cards from the other person it's not so good if you end up using the cards to make a move that then means uh, both of you have run out of cards that mean that the next person can't move which basically means you're in a dead end which means you're screwed which means you've lost which is all that happens when i play the game i i haven't won okay partly and this is even with like talking to my other player and being like ah how do we do this it's weird to me like it's it is sounds like an abstract game which has gotten a lot of sort of press for having and you know kind of rightly so for having the interesting theme of two players trying to work their way through a relationship is that right yeah 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 kind of it's so abstract and the fact that you you have these objectives that are just that there's really no narrative there or no story it's very much an abstract movement puzzle game really and to be honest i think it's only hard because you can't talk about it so it's like Reinek Nitzia's uh relationship simulator 2015 oh my god it is <laughs> oh my god Ah, so is there not that's what like, it's like inside his head? Is it like you know when you're going for ha- both going for happy? It is basically just a card rather than something that impacts the mood of the game. Yes, right. It's basically like every every turn or two you'll have a new objective card, which is a puzzle, which is like how can I end up on this space and not burn all the the movement cards I need? Uh, you know, right now or potentially in the next couple of turns. You know, where should I step on the board to make sure that I can then go somewhere else? Gotcha. Sounds great. Uh, do you? Mm. How did it make you? Uh, how did 
that did it make you feel like you were working your way through a frustrated defeat in a relationship or should we just move on to the next game uh well we should probably move on because i didn't feel hugely inspired by it uh mostly it just feels like a hard puzzle game and i have respect for that i don't think thematically it needs to be about relationships it could be about hacking and trying to hack through a network yeah or going through a maze or something like that and the relationship thing is very um it's like a layer of icing put on top of a loaf of bread it's still a loaf of bread <laughs> that, that sounds like a very big iced bun if i'm if i can speak not even freely not even that not even that well yeah then i'm not terribly i mean it's one of those things where it's like if if the theme comes and it could have been something else then maybe it should have been something else i'm, I'm still turning over in my head that um when we were over at some um, fantasy flight headquarters uh last year um fantasy flight of course makers of some of like the most amazing thematic games around cthulhu or game of thrones or star wars and I said, like, oh, how do you design a new ship for X-Wing, the, the X-Wing miniatures games? And they said, oh, well, first off, we pick the person in the, in the world who we are bringing into the game. So it's like, I don't know, Lando. It's like, what would Lando's ship look like? Like, irrespective of, you know, of, uh, of what mechanics they want to put in the game or ideas they've got for mechanics. It's like, no, they start with theme, they start with story, and then everything else has to come from there. And that's their thought process that enables them to make, like, thematic games. I like that. I'm still trying to unpick it because it's so arse backwards for how I would assume that you design like a mechanically interesting game, but they make it work. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Also, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Lando is the best Star Wars character. He is. Uh, I like his his, his uh, <laughs> uh, cape. Uh, he he I like makes everything some... about him. He's got a mustache. He's got a cape. He's cool. He makes some brave decisions, and he has one of the more interesting character arcs of become, being something and then becoming something. He's the best. He's got a really good uh, expression of regret when um, Han realizes that he's been betrayed. And, uh, That's you, true. The, the actor uh, delivers this kind of like, I'm sorry, I didn't want to do this from across the room. And it's very melodramatic and very Star Wars. I love it. Oh, talking about something we did play when we were at Fantasy Flight, actually, which we can talk about now because it's, well. Oh, because it's actually out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <gasps> I mean, I wonder if... Ra, right? Yeah, Ra, 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 You wrote gently down the Nile. Uh, yeah, Ra is a Reinek Nitzia classic. Um, one of his early good games before uh, he uh, <laughs> ate too many carrots and went mad uh, famously in... We're very sassy today, aren't we? I don't know what's happening, man. I slept really badly. Um, so I, I had that Harrison Ford dream I told you about. Yeah, you said that... Um, we can get onto that later if we if we <laughs> if we if we want to. Ra, um, we played Ra. Yeah, it was good. So Ra was really good, and this is part of the same series that um, uh, it, it's not even technically Fantasy Flight anymore because they're now owned by Asmodee. So it's now Wind Rider Games, which is the new studio made up of Fantasy Flight employees who are handling like Eurogame stuff for Asmodee. Anyway, yeah, they, they that studio put out Samurai, which is a Renegade classic that Fantasy Flight made look absolutely beautiful. And then Ra's the next game in that series. Another Renegade classic that actually I've been looking at the new edition. I don't think Fantasy Flight have done such a bang up job of making it look like a good object, but I think I'll want it anyway because my God, we had fun, didn't we? We just played the we old really version did. because mm. we knew they were republishing it. Yeah. But the old version, still absolutely cracking. Yeah, great fun. It Does, was it was basically it was a lot of it was about um, purposefully trying to just just ratchet through stuff and make the age end as quickly as possible. Like yeah, auctioning and then going. Well, I'm done now, so let's just make everything quickly end it while was, everyone else goes. No, stop. It's just a sequence of auctions. Do you want to give us sort of like the? Do you feel confident in giving the top down like 
spiel. Oh well, I th- I Could- no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was. I remember. <laughs> I remember enough about it, and I remember it was a lot of fun. But I don't feel confident. No, I remember it being. Uh, I lot- could do this, man. Yeah, it's you fine. should do it because I remember it really do vaguely, it. but I'll get it wrong. Okay, so Ra is a game where there's a big bag of tiles, and uh, the tiles all depict different things you might want if you're an Egyptian, like a pharaoh or a Nile or a, 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 a rice or a literacy. Um, and then one by one, you draw tiles out from this bag and you put them on the board, uh, and then. The players either decide whether to add another tile to the auction or declare rah or ideally rah 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 and then that starts the auction and then all the players bid for all of the things mm. whether that's one tile or like seven or eight tiles but you all only actually can win four auctions or at least you all only have four tiles you can use to bid uh in an age and the game's played over three ages so it's a weird balance of trying to decide when you trigger the auction because if you want to lose it, you want to trigger it early so that... Uh, wait, hang on, I'm, I'm trying to express this. Basically, let's say there's some stuff on the table that I don't want and I want, to, uh, I want to force you guys to bid for it. If I call the auction, then I have to bid first. So maybe I call the auction and bid low and then you two are like, fine, have it. Then I've actually accidentally won all this junk I don't mm, want. Yeah. Which might even include things like natural disasters. So you have to wait until the pot is just sweet enough, but no sweeter, and then go, I'll start an auction, and then force your friends to bid for it. Yeah, and also the fact that you get like the, the bidding tokens rather than having like kind of a big pool of coins. It's just they have different numbers and you get like four of them and you might get low yeah, numbers. And they're they're fixed. They're fixed. Yeah, yeah, it's like you can get the thirteen, which is the highest, and then the seven, the five, and the two. Yeah. Or you might get the twelve, the eight, the six and the one. I really like that because there was never any like ambiguity about what the way things could go down. It wasn't like looking at someone's pile of coins and being like, have they got enough to yeah, bid yeah, on this? Yeah. It was literally like, if you had the 13 or if that was the highest one, you'd be like, I can definitely win one auction. <laughs> yeah. And, that means and like, then obviously it's the thing of, you're, you're then playing the entire round trying to make the pot as sweet as possible, but yeah. the fr- your friends know that so they're going to be calling auctions early. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just amazingly as well, like the fact that you can just, some of the things you can draw out the bag will just, just make an auction happen immediately. Wasn't that one? Of yeah, things? that's the raw tile. Yeah, the raw tiles. It was a fantastic period where you were just ready at the end. You were like, yeah, oh, I'm going to I am still salty about this. <laughs> like seven months on that in one of the ages we played, um, I just sat back and didn't bid for yeah. anything. So, so we've done all our bidding. Yeah, so you won all four bids. Uh-huh. You, you'd spent your four bids and Paul spent his four bids and I still had two tiles left. So I was the only player left. So I could just fill up the the auction fully and then bid low and win everything. So you were just going to rake it all in. Yeah, but then immediately, next tile you draw. Raw tile. Raw. And then, <laughs> and then new age. First raw, tile. Raw. <laughs> and so yeah, I got nothing you were mad as anything it was but it was excellent because um like all good sort of risk reward games i knew the exact probability of that yeah. and it was low enough that i felt confident that it wouldn't happen and i only had myself to blame because i got greedy you know it's a game of it's it's greed and some nice little maths of um because all the tiles multiply in different way like farm is good but you need to have at least one nile tile so it floods your farms Pharaohs yes. are good, but you only need to have the most pharaohs. Yeah, and it had that like the nice stuff. options of do you want to kind of try and collect tons of stuff and get the mega points? Do you want to go for the base layer thing, which is going to continue with you through the game? Oh yeah, because some tiles last per age. Some or... are like just temporary, and some like if you put them in place early, then you get them for the whole game, and they can provide bonuses. Yeah, okay. So there was stuff going on, but it was also that nice thing of being able to just easily look at other players and see what they were trying to do and work out whether you were directly competing with people for certain tiles or. 
you know, trying to think of like, do you want to go head to head with somebody else or do you want to try and find your yeah, own exactly. thing? Yeah, exactly. Watching and- what your friends are collecting. Yeah, just Ace. And Paul, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but um, I feel like a lot of the games we're reviewing now either tend to be like really light card games or heavy two hour board games. Uh, with thick manuals. But RAR is like a sweet spot I'm really enjoying right now that I've I've got a Wednesday night regular game night now, which I'm loving to pieces uh, with some great people. But um, I find that often the games we enjoy the most take maybe an hour or 45 minutes and have simple rules. Mm. And I feel like games either go really big or really small and RAR and Samurai as well is that wonderful. We'll finish this in, in under an hour with a rules explanation and we'll have a great time. And if we want to play it again, we can. Yeah, it's a, a medium like sweet spot sort of game, mm-hmm. um, and that's it's a wonderful thing about it is the first time you play it, you kind of you see everything that's in it and you get uh, how the game works. But it's going to be completely different the the next time you play it. You're going to understand, you know, how the sort of the bidding works, what the potential are for things happening. But it's got enough randomness that it's unpredictable. Um, it's not too complicated. It's not so too long. So simple. So simple. It's a wonderful kind of middle-sized game, um, and you're actually really making me want to pick it up and play it again. It was, it's a bit like, uh, funnily enough, Splendor makes me feel that way yeah. as well. Splendor's and I've like... never got bored of Splendor ever. I've played it so much, and it's one of those like Carcassonne almost. It's one of those things that I've never got bored of. Yeah, all games that have like nice chunky tiles as well, or in Splendor's case, uh, discs. Paul, I had a question for you actually. Um, so we got a lot of lovely feedback regarding your uh, Through the Ages review that went up on the site a few days ago. A lovely little uh, so, video. Oh, boy. Reviewing one of, uh, <laughs> one of board games' uh, classics, supposedly. Or two of two of the top ten games ever, because the new yeah. edition and the old edition are both in there. Um, you've, you made it sound like, you know, uh, understandably, like a bit of a relic, very old, very slow. Here's the thing, though, right? I want to know what the most exciting thing that happened in any of your game of Through the Ages were because you know you sort of you did spend some time being like you know this is this game is too slow and it's too heavy and it's not that good but there must be something happened that was fun because you didn't slate it you said it was pretty interesting it, it is interesting and it's it's engrossing to have this player board in front of you and to watch it build up and watch yourself uh you know very much watch your civilization grow card by card as your minds get better your farms get better and then you get some swordsmen or some cavalrymen or uh, uh, cannons for the first time, and you get this, and that that feels very exciting to get like cannons after all this work you've been putting in. It's it's satisfying, is what I would call it. I don't think it's a game that becomes very exciting very often, but it's very satisfying because you build everything brick by brick, piece by piece, turn by turn, mm-hmm. and you know there are so many of those turns. There are so many cards in the game, and then as your uh, your civilization gets more complex, and you get things like more civic action cubes you can do even more things on your turn so your turns get a bit longer and they get a bit more complex it seems like a lot of people in the comments a lot of the commenters on the review were were making this comparison as well but to me it really sounds very much like um you know the pc game civilization in terms of the flow of it like i mean that's pretty yeah as well like um Maybe in the review, in fact, I can't remember. No, no, no. but that was just a picture of Sid Meier in the review. Who's ah, one of the cards? Okay, that, that was it. I was like, I'm sure that was a connection, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that it's not really an exciting video game in many regards. Like, I love the Civ games, but they are satisfying and things just yeah. get slowly bigger and you feel like you've worked towards it. But then at the same time, at the point where it sprawls out and you're doing more and more and more, something happens and at some point it sort of 
you just stop caring about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's got, funnily enough, it's got the thing that the Civ video game has as well, which is maybe two thirds of the way through, oh, or yeah. three quarters of the way through, you kind of sort of know who's winning. That's exactly um, what I was talking about, rather than the board game. And it can yeah. be, yeah, yeah, and it can be hard to rebalance that. I've... And there are conflict cards near the end of Through the Ages that can shift things around a bit, but you can just you can have runaway players and in a video game that can be okay because you can just start again or you might be the runaway player but in a board game where you've still got an hour or two left of play mm. it's well, also a in a, bit in a video tedious. game of Civ or Twilight Imperium or some empire building thing you can gang up on people and uh, it didn't seem like a great deal of that so this is, yeah this is the thing if you have you have these military values for how good your military is oh, yeah. you can't you attack it, someone who's more powerful you than said you. it made you can, sense to a uh, you know, militaries only attack the weakest player. Uh, well, anyone weaker than you, and so you'll right. always have someone who's at the bottom of that pecking order who anybody can attack. You know, it, this is kind of a bit of a failing we've uh, as reviewers this uh, this week because you reviewed through the ages and didn't like it that much. Matt and I reviewed Nations um, last year, and yes, we, and but we haven't played through the ages, and you haven't played Nations, uh, which is a more, a more modern and very well liked. Um, Empire building game seems a lot better. Though. Seems yeah. So people through, through the ages was not bad. I mean, I'll say I, I had some fun with it, but I'm not going to play it again for ages. But I think Matt would agree with me that Nations was actively good. It just mm. wasn't necessarily. I think we might have even recommended it. It was good, and it certainly didn't take four hours. It took two hours. Yeah, yeah. we played Nations around the same time as Imperial, Imperial Settlers. Settlers. Yeah, I actually did them as a double review. Yeah, I remember, and uh, I think I think I came away liking Imperial Settlers more, um, only because it had really nice twee art, and that was just one of the things that just pushed me over the edge with it. Yeah, I liked I liked Nations. I just felt it was a little on the dry side. Yeah, it was for me. For but, like, it was no, no, taste, I, think, you know? I mean, I was I was right there with you, but uh, yeah, that had. Um, God, how did that deal with military? That had wars that you could buy, as like uh, like you could buy any other military upgrade. Yeah. You could buy like the Crimean War or the Falklands War, <laughs> and then that just went onto the war space. And then any players who didn't have sufficient military, like you know, the Crimean War requires fourteen military or whatever. Oh, and yeah. if you don't have fourteen military, every player who couldn't uh, muster fourteen military got penalised. I did. The thing I loved about Nations actually was the fact that it, it kind of. Um it managed to give you a, a sense of, of the difficulty of of expanding a nation. It felt like really kind of yeah. Rome style of being like, everything's going to be big and great. And then it's like, have you remembered to get enough food to feed the people? And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, people are going to starve now. And yeah, that was nice. The fact that it wasn't just sort of this sieve uh, style, just constantly building and everything getting better. It felt like... You spent half your time just trying to kind of like keep the foundation stable yeah. rather than just madly expanding. And I, thematically, I really liked that. And it had a kind of crazy final third. I don't think it was really clear who was going to win because the final third went completely haywire because all the cards you get are so powerful, but then you also need to be able to provide for them in a way like that, that might surprise you. Yeah. No, I liked it. I did like it. Um, it's just, yeah, it kind of left me strangely cold at the same time. But yeah, as just a communication exercise across an ocean, I think we can agree that Nations is better than Through the Ages, like as a trust exercise between the three of us as critics. I, I, I can do that. I'm okay with that. Uh, okay, uh, what else we got? Matt and I played a, a little game, a small game, cute little game, called Fuse. We did, yeah. Ooh, called, what's Fuse? Uh, Fuse is a game about being... Uh, this, uh, this is like a pretty exciting pitch, actually. Paul... 
It's a game about being Hello. bomb disposal experts in space. Oh, God. Um, but, I mean, you wouldn't know it. And that's why it's called Fuse, because when you finally defuse a bomb, you go, Fuse! <laughs> that was oh, the closest uh, ones. I know a lot of podcasts and uh, radio shows will have a bell they ring when they've had, like, yep. good radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to have that right now. Just I thought you I, I would a bad guy. No, don't. But bad no, it's, it's genuinely a good tool to have because when you make a really good joke and I laugh, ding, ding, there's no follow-up there. Like I no. just go, <laughs> anyway, it's fine. It yeah. actually, it, it, you know, makes me feel like I'm punishing you, and that should, it should be the bell, bell, bell. Oh, anyway. It's fine. I do it for fun. It's fine. Mm. Get me a bell. So, uh, so fuse. <laughs> Tell me about fuse before Matthew speaks again. Uh, fuse is a game, a real-time game played over like what. 10 minutes or something? Yeah, Ooh. I think it was literally about 10. Literally a 10 minute game that takes exactly 10 minutes. I love when you have real time games and on the side of the box when it's like, how long does this game take? And usually it's written two to four hours. It has real time games will say like seven minutes exactly. Yeah, iPad out with exciting music and yeah. increasingly stressful noises of, oh, you've got to do this. Yeah. 10 minutes, five minutes I mean, remaining. The app is just a glorified sand timer with a robot lady. It really it? is. Um, yeah. But uh, so all it is is. Um, you have a load of bombs that you need to defuse. Like, the theme on it's very weird, because I guess if each card you get is a bomb, you have to disarm something like 40 bombs in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so each player has a stack of cards. You all need to work through. Um, each card depicts... Uh, Paul, do you remember blueprints? And do you remember the way you would build things with dice? Yes, um, and you have that uh, approximate outline, but then you fill it in the way that you want to. Yeah, it's a little like that. So each card depicts um, dice and numbers on those dice and arrangements of dice you have to place on the card. And then um, you will roll, uh, you'll reach into a bag of dice, roll a handful of dice, and this is all happening in real time. And so you will get like a red six and a green three and a blue one. And everyone has to take, I think, like at least one, but or at, le- at least two dice in the two-player mm. game, or maybe more if you if you can. Um, and so, but this is all happening in real time, right? So Matt will see the blue three and go, oh, I need that! And he'll grab it. But by the time he's picked it up, I'm like, no, I needed that! So it's like a hasty bit of negotiation as you all are shouting. But then to- you've got the question of, because everybody needs to just keep diffusing these bombs by grabbing the colours or the numbers they need. Because mm. it is combinations of like, this one needs a black dice, or this one needs a number two. Um, you, you have the, the toss-up of being like, do you take the time to go, okay, well, who needs what? And talk about it. Yep. Or do you just grab it and go? And we found generally just grabbing it and then going, ah, oh, no, yeah. ah, was the, the best way. But, but, but it was fun. Well, yeah, it was it was definitely fun, but led to awful, awful uh, stuff because if someone can't take a dice, because let's say Matt took the black two and I needed the black two and now I can't put anything in that slot of mm. the card, everyone oh. loses dice. Everyone loses like a black dice or a two yeah. from one of their bombs that they put on a previous round. So it's like if you can't take the dice you need, then everyone loses dice off their established bombs. Um, there's kind of like a little shop of bombs, so when you finish defusing a bomb, you reach the middle of the table and select the bomb you want to defuse next, Um, which is relevant because some of them are easier than others, and if you have like a selection of hard bombs in front of you, you're going to dick over the entire table because you cannot take dice for them. Yeah, because every player is like defusing multiple bombs at once, so it's that thing of being like, ideally ideally you want to just clear it, because then if if it's cleared, then it means that you can't lose the dice from it if someone can't use a dice. Um, but at the same time, it's then this thing of being like, well, do you want to have like, you don't want to end up with like three hard bombs because then you take ages to defuse them. And then there is a bit of a strategy to the fact that you can just have this thing of being like, if you're clever, you can have it at the end so that the only, because I think it's like when there are no more bombs to go into the shop, then you've won. So you can have it so at the end the shop is just full of really hard things. But then if you misjudge it, <laughs> then you might end you up You mean just, you have hard things in front of you? Yeah, that's it, that's it. Yeah, basically... 
if you misjudge it, you can end up just having like just a shop full of really horrible bombs, and you have to get Take through them. them and then, and yeah, it it was uh, it was good. It was okay. Yeah, I mean, it was like we, we weren't blown away from it. Right? It worked. It was kind of fun. Yeah, you know, um, we like, just sort of had fun with it, and if, then we're like, yeah. If someone who had for whom money was not much of an object was like. I quite would want to buy this Fuse game, and I was standing next to them. I would not say, do not buy it. <laughs> it, it could be a sort of thing. That's an endorsement. There you go. Shut up and sit down. It doesn't recommend, but could in the right circumstance. It could be a fun kind of uh, warm-up game if you're about to have an evening of... Uh, yeah, sure, if you're a fan of real-time stuff. It's, it's ten minutes, and it, was, it, it did get us going. I finally got to play a game this month that I've been wanting to play for ages, um, which is a Japanese game called A Fake Artist Goes to New York. So, oh, yeah. You know this one, Paul? I have seen people tweeting about this. It, Friends of mine have tweeted the horrors that they've drawn. It's so good. And actually, much like Spyfall, um, which we liked the sound of so much that before we could get a copy, we um, just pirated one and made it out of paper and like invited my friends around and have one make a copy of Spyfall before it was released in the UK. I'd recommend people do that with a fake artist goes to New York as well because it's really just paper and different colored pens. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it is, Matt, is... Uh, there's like a table of people, like they said, there's six of us. One of the one person is the judge, and then uh, writes down what we're drawing on uh, a piece of paper. Like let's say uh, giraffe, and he will write down giraffe on four pieces of card, and then fake on the fifth or a big X or something. He'll hand, he'll shuffle those up and hand them out to everybody. So everyone knows they're drawing a giraffe except for one person who is the fake. Um, however, everyone at least knows the category, which is animal, right? So then someone starts off by taking the piece of paper that you're drawing and then make, you have to draw one continuous line on that piece of paper beginning the drawing of, theoretically, a giraffe. You then pass this people around clockwise and then people will draw, like, essentially com- trying to complete the drawing working together. So you draw a line, then you pass to me, then I draw a line, then I pass it to Paul and Paul draws a line. But somewhere out of the three of us, someone has no idea what we're drawing. And, uh, and also, here's the thing, because like Spyfall, if the fake artist figures out what you're drawing, then... Um, then they win. So they need to... Be abstract enough. Yeah. yeah. So then... But here's the thing. At the end of it, you get something that is so funny. Like, in, like we had Marilyn Monroe, which was this, like, awful, <laughs> winking Picasso woman. Because it's like... When someone draws an eye, for example, like a very feminine eye, then you've yeah. shown, I'm not the fake artist. But then there's also no incentive for anyone else to draw an eye because then you're just copying someone else. So, so you you'll always get... You'll get Yeah, you'll get one eye or, like the top lip or one leg and stuff. And then people around the table will go, hmm, just like a good answer in Spy 4 because they'll go, oh, I know what you're doing. Like I drew a circle <laughs> under Marilyn Monroe which was visibly a steam, like a steam ah, thing. Yes. Yes. And everyone goes, ah. But then because the whole table did it, I knew the fake artist had gone, ah, as well. Even though they had no way of knowing what the <laughs> hell it was. But yeah, you just draw monstrosities and it's it's hilarious. It's really, really, really good. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of deconstructing a piece of... That is that is actually like quite artistically interesting in itself. And in yeah. terms of, like, it sounds like an artist movement yeah. of being like deconstructing an image into the simple components of exactly what components do you need to convey what this is. Yeah. Like, down to the, the bare bones. Yeah. It's... Yeah. That's, but also... That's interesting in but a way. You, but, if you, but you can't even express it that much because no. if someone draws like a perfect outline of a giraffe on their first go than the fake artist like giraffe. It's almost the definition of a lot of art, really. How, how abstract can you be so that the peons don't understand? Wow. <laughs> I like that. That's good. I would ring the bell now. Ding, yeah. ding, ding. Paul, if you get the chance to play this, you absolutely have to because if nothing else, much like a lot of, um, like, like drawing games, like Pictionary, 
after a few games of fake artist, you will have a box containing like 15 drawings that all make you laugh. Like 15 drawings of yeah. from all these different evenings of like a weird half horse, half rat or a lady with, with no clothes on, but like a, a dog in her body. Like it's just so weird and, uh, and intrinsically funny. Like, like Spy for anytime anyone takes a turn doing anything, it's funny. Does it come with anything fun, like, uh, in terms of the nope. box? I mean, it, well, the box is gorgeous. I'll bring it up on Google Image Search now so you can go, ah, oh, so nice. I just thought it'd be, like, it's kind of a dumb idea, but I thought it'd be really cool for something like that to have, like, kind of, imagine if you had one of those boxes that has a kind of plastic transparent section on the front and it could be, like, a little framed photo and it always means that on the box you have a picture of one of the things you drew in the game. Yeah, there you go. That's it. That would be a good idea, but no, that's it. So that box that you're looking at is hot pink, and it's about the size of a, a pack of ten cigarettes. Yeah, like it's. Tiny. It doesn't need to be big, I guess, does it? No, and um, I think um, like a lot of uh, games that come out of Japan as well are, do come in tiny boxes. Like they're very. Um, uh, it's it, it's like almost ridiculous. Like it, it's exactly what you would expect from that culture. But yeah, a lot of games that come out of Japan um, do come in absolutely tiny boxes. And then we continue to fetishize that in the West. So when publishers bring Japanese games over, they continue to come in tiny boxes, which, and I've written about this, I'm happy with. My house is full. Yep. I want tiny boxes. Oh, yeah. Tiny boxes. Oh, mama. I mean, none of that travel scrabble bullshit where you can't even pick up the pieces. Nope. Small as you can manage, please. If efficient is good. Well, I found that when I couldn't believe when we went to the States and I realized that, hey, that's my fish in America. It's sold in a tiny, tiny box. Whereas yeah, all I had it here is. was like huge in the end i actually just threw away the box and i just keep it in a baggie <laughs> man because it's, it's such a tiny amount of stuff i should admit this on the podcast so i did have to have a serious thing i was in a box a shop in vancouver actually paul when i was visiting you um yeah that, it was a shop that just sold nice boxes it was the most middle class shop like really nice like felt <laughs> boxes and stuff and they had these ones that stacked like they're probably like imagine if you were in a really classy Swedish office that all the paperwork could be kept in these like little felt boxes that all stack up in like a big tessellated like shape. The offices of your mind never cease to amaze me. Yeah, oh, man, I want to work in an office so bad. It's a magical Quince's, wonderland to me. is like office fantasies. I just love them. <laughs> it's like it's like Alice in Wonderland, but with like IKEA furniture. <laughs> oh, that my is word. the best description of what happens inside my head. Yeah, but no, I've I've only ever been freelance my whole life, so I fantasize about stability, water coolers. I can no. do some great chat around a water cooler, man. I've got so many historical <laughs> no. facts. And yet you also allow your fantasies to be blurred and tainted by tiny felt boxes in the Swedish organization. Anyway, l listen, here's what I was thinking, is that I could actually, stick with me here, yep. throw okay. away the boxes for all of my board games and put each the contents of every single box in one of these like really nice, very small flat pack boxes. Mm -hmm. And then my room, if you walked in, would just... And it would almost be like a li like a library or like a you know a you, velvet the, chamber. Yeah, well, like you know the back mm. rooms of museums, like um, the Smithsonian or the National History Museum or something. You've seen those shots of the basement where it's like a room that contains like forty shelves, and then in each shelf, and they're all individually labelled of like A to E, and then you open A. And to be honest, like, I'm just still fixating on these velvet code boxes. I can't it's, describe. It's, it's all gone a bit like uh, dude. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to return to Google Image Search now, and I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna type nice box. I just think that your board game uh, collection would just end up looking like a David Lynch dream sequence. Yeah, it would, well, it'd would be, be nicer great. than what it looks right now, which is just, ah, look, this is perfect, actually. 
Yeah, well, has he just? He is. <laughs> he is just looking at Google Images nice boxes. I think. Um, so hey, that's that's the thing to do when you're on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> Matt, do, Matt, while he's doing that, do you want to hear about my Harrison Ford dream? I'm just still thinking about nice boxes, to be honest. So I'm all right. All right. Thanks. It's fine. Look, something, it was very Lynchian. Something like this, you know, like the sort of soft boxes with handles, and then you know, with nice lids, and they mm. all stack up oh. neatly. Yeah, God. they kind of look like they're pretty IKEA. I mean, not them, but you know. But you get, get, so my my point with this is that you know, hey, I'm actually so sick of the, my board game boxes taking up so much room and being so ugly. Yeah. That like I'm I'm looking for any solution. Well, hey, here's a cool idea. How about what we might see in the future, which would be brilliant if board games do continue to actually get more popular in terms of mainstream culture and not in the way of just being like let's let's continue the blood right by buying Monopoly again so the generation <laughs> may play Monopoly again for another hundred years. But in terms of them actually being a thing, maybe what we could have is similar to what we have with books. Remember what happened with like Harry Potter? It being like, Harry Potter, it's for kids. And then because it came popular, it was like, well, now you get the adult versions of covers. You know, with books, you yeah. get like the classic... Yeah, Ollie Moss is doing the new covers. Yeah, he does yeah. new ones. They're great. But they do that with loads of books. They have the kind of like uh, cheap and cheerful, colourful cover. And then they have the classy... Classics Club cover. Imagine if they started doing that with board games, of well, having like board games which are exactly the same, but just designed with boxes and pieces that man, are just slightly more I've grown up. I've talked about this before. Kickstarter has been the home of the ugliest art designs that board games have ever oh, it's seen. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. But also the nicest, because sometimes games yeah. like the metagame or Monica's come out. That's true. Or even, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Cards Against Humanity, obviously, but like the it's box classy at design. Least is classy. Yeah, yeah. And so, like. Yeah. You get people who come from design backgrounds who just want to put a nice object in your house. Mm. Fabulous Beast, for some reason. Another, I mean, I don't know about um, Fabulous Beast for a couple of reasons. But actually, topic, topically, on the subject of boxes, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, break for your interview in a hot second, Paul. But, uh, a hot second. I got this email this week uh, from Leah. Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. And she writes, hi, shall I sit down? My husband is a massive uh, gamer and loves your stuff. He's just that I get in touch. I bought him Pandemic Legacy and he was explaining how it worked and that it was kind of a one-time play thing and that it couldn't even really be passed on to other people once finished. I've got an environmental management background and I was a bit appalled about the sustainability issues with that. What will people do with their sets once the game is played? So I emailed F2Z Entertainment and asked them what the components were made of, what the sustainability factors were and got this reply. Hi Leah, um, for the materials in the game, most of the components are plastic or cardboard. Since I've never been in contact with our manufacturer, I do not know if any of these parts are made from recyclable materials, but they are all recyclable if you do not wish to keep them. And basically Leah says, I think there's a groundswell of interest in sustainable and ethically sourced products and other luxury markets mm-hmm. are starting to tap into this. Is the game industry a bit behind with this? Is there a market for greener games? And I sort of... That's an interesting question. Yeah, and I wrote back to her basically saying that games publishers have enough trouble keeping the lights on and lots of them don't even do it full time. Um, mm. And, you know, right now the, the main uh, worry for board game you know, publishers is like, if we make a box, is it going to get noticed in game shops? Is sure. it going to get noticed in Target? And until we get past that, you know, um, you can't really expect people to make boxes that... If we, if we can't even have boxes that look nice, having them made of nice materials is a whole other thing. It's difficult. It's an interesting issue, though. Yeah, but I think it is one of those things that it's like it's more uh, with sustainability when we're looking at these companies that are like making millions and millions and millions every year. It's like, come on, guys, just take a slight dent in that and do a solid for the world. Oh, you're talking about like Monopoly and just, stuff? No, just generally. Like, I mean, just general companies. That's why a lot of the sustainability is on the luxury side. Like, it's it's a difficult thing. Like, I actually like uh, I've got really into sustainability in the past couple of years, and one of the things I've been trying to find is 
websites which sell ethically produced, uh, sustainably made clothing. The idea of like clothing's clothing which is made out of like decent materials, not made by people who are paid nothing, and actually built to last for years. Like so, you buy shirts or jumpers, and they will last you for like you know ten, fifteen years. Isn't there like a if you want that stuff, don't you just go to like Yorkshire and go to the shops where farmers buy their clothes that are like them, you know, the tweeds and the jackets that look like they've gone through wars. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Is like I'm thinking there must be something like that, but it, you don't have to wear tweed that makes <laughs> you look like you've been in a war. Yes. Um, and and actually, in terms of options, there's lots of uh, on the as is always the way. There's quite a lot more options for women, but for men, there's basically nothing. You know, I think it's com- really. Yeah. I think it's confusing as well because there's we we refer to this as a luxury hobby because you know obviously we all spend a lot of money on it and most of the people involved in board gaming have an awful lot of disposable income, but. It's not a luxury hobby in the sense that the publishers are, like, making money hand over fist. No. The publishers, like... I mean, you were just on Tuesday Night Games podcast. Like, you know, Alan Girding is a psychologist, like, lecturer yeah. by trade. And, you know, Czech Games, who one of our favorite publishers, employs, like, two or three people. Mm-hmm. Shut Up and Sit Down employs more people than, like, lots of board game publishers. Which is crazy, yeah. So, it's true. yeah, while the word luxury gets bandied around a lot in the hobby, I think we're a ways from uh, having the kind of luxury boxes that I would like to see. I also think, and I think this does vary from person to person, but... um. I think with Pandemic Legacy, for example, like I am getting close to the end of my campaign with that now, and we must have played it for about 15, 20 hours already. Like, admittedly, mm-hmm. some of the games have been quite slow. <laughs> no, no, 15, uh, but, 20 hours sounds like less than it took me. Yeah, but, it, you know, I know for a lot of people when they're buying a game, they really want to rinse it, and they maybe have like more regular um, meetup groups, and they really do buy something and then play it for 50 hours. I find I have got games that I do that with, but a lot of stuff I buy a game for thirty pounds, forty pounds, thinking, you know, if I play it like four or five times, that's probably like I feel like I've got my money's worth. Mm-hmm. Not even really of myself, but if you start to think about it in terms of like you know the evenings and the number of yeah, people yeah, who've been yeah. entertained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it is a weird thing of being like, yeah, after you're finished with it, you can't do anything else with it. But then often, like I think, well, how much do I have to play something to get enjoyment from it? And I guess the only problem is then, yeah, you can't give it to somebody else. Um, and I think if all board games were like that, like, oh, I'm done with it now, and that's it, it now just gets in, thrown in the bin, that would be awful. But I think providing it doesn't become such a kind of thing that it is... Well, it's such like a zeitgeist thing that every board game is legacy yeah. and we're throwing away our entire collections. Yeah. I think it is, as a little luxury thing, as a particular luxury thing, I think it's fine, um, providing it you doesn't know become what? a regular thing. I think that's a good argument for buying stuff that is not the latest version of Monopoly as well. If we stop buying the latest Monopoly or Cluedo because those sit on the shelf and they get played once or twice a year. That's the thing. I and mean, then th- probably that... thrown away or given away. Do we, we get way more play out of something else than we do out of the latest Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, that's, Avengers, Monopoly. That's exactly it. And I think that's the thing is really you look at something like Pandemic which is built to be um, built to be a novelty basically in, in a very literal meaning of the word. Um, but then, yeah, you know, you also look at the fact that Monopoly and stuff and these games are, haven't changed for a long time. They're actually, some of the spin-offs of these games are quite good and quite fun, you know, in terms of having different rules and meaning different games. But the core, you know, when somebody buys London Monopoly or Zelda Monopoly or Star Wars Monopoly, you know, it's just as bad in a way. And the fact that people are constantly buying new versions of things that are the same. Wasteful. Yeah. Disgusting. No, let's, Nobody should be doing let's this. Do, it's unethical. Let's do what our <laughs> hobby has always done. And never mind Pandemic Legacy. Let's blame uh, Monopoly for all the world's <laughs> yeah. ills. No, but I do agree with you. And on that note, uh, Paul, we should say goodbye for the month and cut into your cool interview. Very well. Well, uh, we'll see you in a few weeks, man. 
Who, me? Are you coming? No, I mean, like, for the next podcast. Never mind! Roll the interview! Hello, Isaac. How are you? Hello, Paul. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm about to fill myself with tea, so that's great. (laughs) Isaac, for the benefit of everyone listening who might not know what you do, what is your position and where? I am the lead game designer at Plaid Hat Games, and I'm also the art director at Plaid Hat Games. That's two jobs in one. Yes. <laughs> okay. That sounds like then you have a lot kind of under your purview. Yeah, we, uh, we're we a small company here at Plaid Hat. There's five of us in the office usually handling our products, and you know we do a good job of you know just doing what needs to be done in order to get those games out there and uh, get get some cool content out there for the fans. So uh, we we wear many hats here. And five people doesn't sound like very much. That's um, that's basically like a potentially a single small office team. Yeah. Yeah. It's so we're still we're still a little small office team. We were recently purchased by F2Z. Um, so we do have their backing and they have about 40 employees in uh, uh, Canada, um, as well as some employees in Germany. And uh, they are definitely a huge help <laughs> with a lot of the business end of things um, and uh, production and things like that. So um, we do have that uh, backing now. So that definitely has propelled us uh, forward quite a bit. Well, I'd like to, if you don't mind, ask you a little bit about what that's like for you guys. But for, I mean, first of all, how how long have you been with Plant Hat? Have you been there pretty much since the start of things? Um, well, I came on around uh, the release of Dungeon Run. Um, that's when I first started getting uh, to know Colby um, and started working with him and going to conventions and volunteering for uh, different events and uh, showing him my designs. And around that time, he also signed City of Remnants, which was my first release. Um, and since then, I've pretty much been by his side, helping grow the company, helping uh, try to make sure that we are, you know, keeping our standards up and trying to do new interesting things and uh, taking on different roles as those roles came up. And I was officially hired about two and a half years ago now. Um, so I was hired full time as an employee back then. Um, Colby had just been an employee himself full time for about a year. So uh, things have accelerated quite quickly for us since then. It feels like they really have. We looked at City of Remnants on Shut Up and Sit Down a couple of years ago now. We, we, mm. we were quite excited about it. Yeah, uh, it was it was my favorite review of that game. By the way, thank you guys so much. Thank you. There's got a few bias in there now because we yeah. we we said that so excitedly. But it's a good game, and I mean, when we talk about Plaid Hat, we talk about Summoner Wars or Dead of Winter or Ashes or this stable of games that, for a small team, you seem to be punching above your weight. How do you do that? Well, um, you know, a lot of a lot of our projects, you know, are in development for a long period of time. So it looks like you know when things are releasing uh, at the same time, it looks like oh well, they're just pumping stuff out right away. But you know, those things those things have been in development for you know a period of time. Ashes was a two and a half year process. Dead of Winter was also the same um, before you know the public eye even knew that the product was out there. So there are things that we're working on now that you guys won't be seeing until 2017, 2018 as well. So, you know, it's all about, you know, managing that time, understanding what kind of releases we want to start uh, putting out there and uh, different, different people that we start collaborating with and start offering interesting things. Uh, We have multiple designers here on the, on the team. Um, Now that we're down in Dallas, we associate more with uh, Jerry Hawthorne who designed Mice and Mystics. Uh, We've also started working a lot with Emerson um, who did uh, Spectre Ops and is going to be releasing some more titles with us as well. So um, 
you know, as we grow and as we start uh, getting to know other people, we add different members and start you know, looking at different designs and things like that that are and starting to be worked on and coming out and uh, offering some new unique perspectives that still work for our brands. That's quite a long time. When when you say 2018, I mean, that's two, <laughs> two and a half years ahead, maybe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I thought the secret was going to be we've got some amazing design process, but it's is it more that you just take your time? Yeah, I mean, every project that we put out there um, takes time and takes love and takes a lot of failure for us to figure out which um, avenue it needs to go in in order to be correct. Um, and we rely a lot on playtesters. We rely a lot on each other and getting each other's feedback and feel and taking different um, paths depending on how people are feeling about the project. We like to get as much feedback as possible. Um, before we really commit to, you know, putting things into production, putting art into um, into um, the game and uh, putting graphic design into it, because those are also long, arduous processes that um, require a lot of forethought. And if the design isn't there, um, it can definitely be quite a hurdle to get all those other things done um, if the design isn't um, finalized or working. So it's, it's, it's about being thorough. Yes. <laughs> Very thorough. And we still have a lot of things to improve on. <laughs> Are you able to give us any kind of a hint or a, a look ahead for what might be next? Well, um, I'm I personally, I'm definitely working on um, more crossword games in the future. Um, we had announced a while back that we would be doing. Um, we had a vote on our <laughs> on our pre-order sites. Uh, for when the original Dead of Winter was uh, there and we had some different options and people voted that they want to see a Lost in Space Crossroads game out there. And that has been a crazy, long, uh, weird development for me. It's been passed on to different designers and other designers and we're, we're, we're still working on that project and trying to make it right and seeing if we can go ahead and deliver that promise to the people that voted and wanted to see that type of crossword game out there on the market. Um, and other, other crossword games that I'm working on as well um, and hoping to release. Um, and uh, there's, <laughs> there's definitely a lot more expansions coming for Ashes and uh, that is taking up quite a bit of my time. Luckily, um, you know, Dead of Winter and Ashes have been somewhat of a success. And because of that, it also requires, um, you know, follow through and uh, more expansion of those brands and trying to come out with uh, other products that help uh, continue to facilitate a good community and, um, you know, continuing of the brands and helping people um, just kind of know more about Dead of Winter and Ashes and, uh, Lots of lots of new horizons there because uh, um, with Dead of Winter, uh, uh, that was my first uh, big success and uh, the first time that I developed an expansion there. And Ashes, it's kind of the same thing. It's the first time I've done an organized play type game, and that's also coming with its own hurdles and uh, um, learning experiences as well. So they're <laughs> they're definitely taking up quite a bit more time where I could also be working on other projects, which I also have other projects to be working on too. <laughs> yeah, of course. So uh, I, I've had a little bit of a, it's fair to say, a sort of a preview look at what's coming for Ashes um, and for Dead of Winter. Um, you have talked about the new sort of, it's semi-standalone or it's basically standalone, isn't it? The, yeah, it's, it's completely standalone. 
Um, the Long Night introduces um, some different modules that you can um, use with your previous game as well as this one, but it offers um, anybody who's new to the product as well a complete standalone experience, but anyone who already has a product, it's all new crossword cards, it's all new crisis cards, it's all new secret objectives, it's all new cards and locations and things like that. Um, it's really a very deluxe product <laughs> so it has a lot of a lot of different things that you can go ahead and play around with and uh, utilize in with your old game as well as uh, just u- utilizing it as a new experience too but what struck me i mean it, it looks it looks large and it looks like you have a lot here that people can throw in in into dead of winter which is already a game with quite a lot in it mm-hmm. but you have it's fair to say uh done something quite quite diverse or quite original with some of the character ideas Yes. Um, what I wanted to do with this um, set is really kind of take a look at um, where we where we can improve upon. And it was an opportunity to kind of really dive in to these characters. Now that we knew uh, Dead of Winter was something that people were paying attention to, that it was something that um, people were connecting with and enjoying the stories and applying their stories to these characters and applying themselves to uh, these different situations. It was an opportunity for us to kind of take a look and introduce some characters that may not be represented very well in other, in, in, in our industry period. Um, so something that was very important to me is to offer a lot of diversity to offer um, characters that were suffering with different ailments. We have a blind character. We have a character that also um, has a prosthetic limb. Um, we have a character that's transgender. Um, we have a character that uh, is from the Middle East and has things um, has things that they have to deal with there. There are there are a lot of different characters in the game that kind of offer unique perspectives um, to kind of give people Now we're not trying to necessarily preach or be, uh, be, um, be forcing some sort of agenda or anything like that. But we also wanted to kind of take the opportunity to represent people that aren't necessarily represented um, very well in a lot of different forms of entertainments. Um, and I think that is something that our industry desperately wants. That's not something you necessarily had to do, though. I mean, we we are looking uh, at an industry where by doing this, you were sort of sticking your neck out somewhat. Is that fair to say? Um, it's not. It's it's we're not we're not looking at it. I guess it's like uh, we're. Well, I don't know. It's uh, definitely something that uh, is important to us here at Plat Hat Games to represent our characters with a a little bit more thoughts. And kind of show that um, these these people and these uh, characters can be um, a way to kind of look through other people's eyes and understand them and understand um, what their struggles are. And they may not necessarily resonate with the individual or maybe the person didn't even think about that kind of stuff. I mean, um, I am a Latino larger gay guy (laughs) so um i'm definitely not uh the typical person in the industry um there is there is a you know i definitely feel different um a lot of the time when i'm around people and uh in the industry and that's nothing bad but it's also it's also something that i just come from a different perspective also looking into the industry as well and i think that it's our duty to kind of allow those different perspectives and have 
have uh, th- those options because there are people out there that are looking for those type of characters to represent them and to kind of tell their story. And Dead of Winter can allow that kind of interaction and that exploring exploring that kind of story and um, exploring um, different people's perspectives. Was there ever any uh, any doubt in your mind or any discussion about whether you guys should go ahead and uh, have this diverse roster of characters? Was there ever any idea of uh, maybe we should just go for a safe option? There were like discussions. There were just definitely discussions on what is what how how do we do this appropriately? How to how do we do um, this without? Um, you know, making it, making it some sort of, (laughs) um, some sort of agenda or in your face or anything like that. But also, um, how do we represent these characters with respect? Um, and not necessarily just throw only our outlook in there, but also offer the outlook of other people and seeing how we can represent that on equal base, but also allow the game to do what it does. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it has very random effects happen to people and different, different stories that will happen to different characters. And some people might see other characters in a different light, depending on what, what kind of crossword cards or what events happen throughout the game. Um, So it's, it's allowing that kind of flexibility. Um, And in the end, we knew, we knew that's, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to offer, we wanted to offer that kind of diverse roster. It's, it wasn't something that was something that uh, we felt like, Oh, like we're going to get, we're going to get backlash or anything like that. I don't, I didn't think so. I think the industry definitely wants to see more characters that have a, a different, uh, just a far more, far more wide kind of reach. I, I would agree. I mean, I think it's a great thing to do. And I think more representation is only a good thing. I think more diversity is only a good thing. And I feel Maybe we're on the verge of seeing the games industry doing this more and more. I feel that we're seeing, particularly with representation of women in video games and how, uh, sorry, women in board games and how much um, Fantasy Flight are increasingly putting uh, women characters in games or things like on the front of Imperial Assault. Uh, and I feel that is only a good thing. However, there's there's always a little bit of pushback or there's always a sort of an element of I don't know the reactionary out there sometimes, or people who are who will make the accusation that you are being too politically correct, or that, as you put it up uh, just now, that maybe you have an agenda. Um, do you have anything particular that you would uh, a response to anything like that, or is that a, a, a problem that you worry about? Does it keep you up at night, or does it not at all come <laughs> up on your radar? I mean, it doesn't keep me up at night. I think um, when we. I, I have the perspective of thinking that, hey, you know, in the end, this is the board game industry, which is a very small representation of the world as a whole. <laughs> um, and it's it's not that I don't respect and love the people that are um, uh, part of it and part of that community, but um, I take the punches that come, and I think that we all here can can understand that if some people have different uh, different opinions, that's not a bad thing. Um, we are in an industry as designers, um, that have to learn how to take criticism in order to improve period. Um, so if we are going to be moving forward and taking steps to do something that we feel passionate about, um, it's, it's going to come with some criticism period. And that's always going to be the case. 
Um, and personally, uh, <laughs> we just don't care. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to do, we're going to do what, we're going to do what makes us passionate and happy. And, uh, it, that we feel is the right way to go. You know, um, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that, you know, this, this industry is driven by passion and that's, that's where we stand. Fair enough. And I think that's, that's a, a, a very good answer and a very, very important position to take. Do I have time to ask you a few quick questions about ashes, maybe? Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk about it. So here's, here's a thing as well. You have a substantial release schedule ahead of you, don't you? Yes. <laughs> you guys are invested in ashes. Yes, very much so. Can you talk a little bit about that without giving too much away? Yeah, well, we have um, the release of the next two Phoenix Borns that are coming out, as well as an exclusive web uh, promo Phoenix Born that will be released at the same time um, here in April. I believe that the release date is April 21st. We also have another one scheduled for uh, Gen Con as well, another two uh, Phoenix Borns uh, and um, another promo. <laughs> and uh, we are going to be releasing a, another set of dice and another four uh, Phoenix Borns and... Um, um, another promo as well, uh, depending on when um, testing finishes up. So that's just going into testing. Um, it's going to take a few months, and we're introducing new dice. So I'm not 100% sure um, if we'll win exactly the release date for those will be. It will depend on testing. And as I have found out, testing is quite the process with this game. <laughs> <laughs> Especially fine. since you, you want to well, yeah. you want to balance it well, I suppose. Yeah, um, we want we uh, the the goal with Ashes for me was to make every card in the game useful and feel interesting, or at least feel interesting as things come out, and and the things that are not not seeing as much love or play and things like that will become more loved and uh, play as the game continues. So. My entire thought process as developing the game is to give people a sense of value with every card that they've purchased. And I want them to explore that and have fun with that. Um, my favorite, my favorite, favorite thing about card games is building that deck and having that experience of creating this interesting character and this interesting card pool that you can go ahead and pull from and just, just make these cool decks and these cool combos that people can go ahead and see play out. And it's like, Oh man, I did something really interesting and really fun. And you weren't expecting that. And uh, that's, that's the fun of developing a game like ashes, um, seeing what the community can come up with and develop, uh, develop um, with, you know, just another 10 different cards added to the pool. Is it challenging trying to develop a a card game like this in this sort of competitive space? I mean, we've got a history of of magic being very big, of Netrunner getting more and more popular all the time. It's uh, I don't want to say a competitive might be not the the right word, but it's it's got to be a challenging kind of arena to to get into and establish yourself in. Oh, it's definitely a very challenging arena. Um, the thing about these type of games is that they don't really live 100% in the same space as the rest of the industry. Um, they're kind of their own breed, you know? Um, so that's something that we're kind of discovering and trying to adjust our thinking based on that, that, um, that reality. Um, because 
there's so, there when you think about the board game industry, you think about BGG and you think about you know board games constantly coming out, and our industry has is, has morphed into this thing where there's constantly new things and new interesting things to kind of uh, take attention to. And card games like this require a little bit of devotion and continuation um, if you want to be part of that scene. And a lot of people are kind of moving away from that. At the same time, too, there's still a giant amount of people that aren't necessarily very vocal in um, this side or the board game part of the industry, but are very vocal in their own own groups and uh, things like that. And uh, w- it's very different from what we've been marketing to before, you know. If you had any tips or if you had any lessons learned from that process of trying to put out a either a collectible card game or a sort of uh, living card game, um, particularly, you know, there, there are designers out there who I'm sure would be very excited to make this kind of thing. But it seems kind of impenetrable. Um, do you have any tips for how a person would establish themselves or get started or what they look for in how they reach an audience even? I don't care how many playtesters you have. You need about double. <laughs> that. Okay. So put it, put it in front of as many, many, many people as possible and take advantage of people that are um, used to be obsessed with other games. Um, my lead playtester was also in, into the magic scene quite, quite a bit. Um, so his, his, um, thought process and his um, knowledge of that part of the industry has been a huge help um, and gather gather those types of people around you that have a mindset for the competitive side of things because those are the people that are going to be asking you the hard questions they're going to be asking you about those minute interactions that you maybe didn't even think could occur um, that they have been you know theorizing and trying and trying to figure out and can see as soon as another card is p- posted up online <laughs> So um, that is definitely not my strong suit. I'm more of a artsy-fartsy kind of <laughs> go with the flow. Um, I'm making things that I feel are cool kind of guy. And um, it's, it's definitely very helpful to have the mindset of, well, this interaction is going to provide this, 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 and this um, with all of these other cards that are already in the pool. So, <laughs> so having people like that around you is amazing. Uh, hire editors, <laughs> lots of editors. Okay. And um, make sure that your wording is consistent throughout those cards because it's very easy not to be. Um, there's already some, some issues that I've had with that on, um, some wording consistencies that I wish were a little bit tighter, uh, in ashes. And, uh, those are things that are very, very important to us moving forward and making sure that those, uh, cards are all consistent across the board. So people have a understanding of how the flow of the language in the card game works as they continue growing with the game. Fair enough. That sounds like excellent advice. And I, I personally can always speak to the, the importance and the power of having an editor. It's so, so helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, very much so. Isaac, thank you f- so much for your time. Being as busy as you guys are, I know that you uh, you had to put a little bit of time aside to speak to me today. So I very much appreciate that. Thank you. No problem, Paul. I appreciate you uh, taking the time as well. Um, like I said earlier, I mean, you guys, you guys uh, are doing a great job expanding the industry and talking talking about uh new new things that are out there and getting people excited and i appreciate that so much i'm gonna definitely leave that bit of praise for us on the end of this interview thank you (laughs) (laughs) no problem 
And that was me speaking to Isaac Vega next week, next week, next podcast, next month. Sometime we will have a special folk story from Tim Schafer, the game designer behind Psychonauts and some other games that don't come to my mind right now, like Broken Age and Day of the Tentacle and so much more. He's got a weird kind of drawing folk game that he's going to tell us about. Uh, I won't spoil it. Tune in next, not next week, not next week, because it just won't be here. Bye.